Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on November the 8th, 2011. For newcomers, you should always make use of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. There's hundreds and hundreds of audios to download and one at a time, hopefully, and uh, listen to them uh, if you can stand them, because it's not nice stuff. It's about this re- the real reality behind this system. And if you can get your way through it, work your way through it, you'll find out how the big organizations all work together, network together. They even have special units to integrate them on their outer edges, so they're all on board with one big agenda at the same time across the whole planet. And this is what you're up against, massive money, uh, the big uh, private banks, the massive private banks and bankers, and uh, their foundations, again, the so-called charitable foundations that run organizations, all under the, the umbrella groups of the United Nations, and how they literally create the policies, the social culture, and so on, to be taught to children through school. And, it's, and they run uh, our world for us. They give us uh, our present reality. They planned that a long time ago, and they've already planned, uh, the youngsters who are born right now, their future reality as well. So nothing is, is just stumbling along through time. The world isn't like that. The world is guided down through time by those who are always in control of it. And so I try and show you how it all pulls together and creates pretty well all, all of your reality, even the things that you like, dislike, and the organizations that you might belong to. And they can predict you personally down to, to a, a, a fraction, a fraction of 1% of, of predictability. Every single person pretty well on the planet they have uh, analyzed to the nth degree. So help yourself to the audios, find out how it all works, where it's going, why it exists in the first place, how it came into being, and where it plans to go. Because there's no surprises at all. It's, it's quite boring reading news. The only reason I do it is to show you how it links in with what so-and-so said maybe 50 years ago at some international meeting. Uh, and because literally nothing, nothing is news at all. It's all planned that way. You're living through one big script written a long, long time ago. And remember, too, that you are the audience that bring me to you. I don't bring on advertisers. I don't have shares in, the, in advertisers. I don't have partial ownership either in, in private advertisers or what they sell. So it's up to you, that the people who listen, to help me keep going by buying the books and discs that I have for sale at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. It just, that's all I'm after, really. I'm not creating a big business here or an empire. So I hope that you just want to hear the basic facts and then go and search it out for yourself and verify it or deny it, however you want to do. It's up to you. And also, um, from the U.S. to Canada, you can order these books and discs by using personal check or international postal money order and from your post office. Or you can use PayPal. Uh, and again, you can need some people to send cash. But uh, you'll find out how to do it at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And across the world, uh, you can get the choice of using PayPal again. Uh, and uh, there's, there's Western Union and MoneyGram uh, on top of that. That's where you're stuck with, I'm afraid, if you live across the seas. But remember, straight donations are really welcome as well because 
And some some uh, weeks had hardly any orders at all, and uh, I depend upon the occasional donation to to make it through to the month. Now, what I do here is, is chronicle what happens, tell you why it's happening. Uh, I, in other words, I add to the, the media articles uh, that the parts that they miss out for you, deliberately, of course, because everything is perception management. You, you come to rationalize your reality by the information that's fed to you. All you have to do is omit uh, a half or even less than that of a story and, and of course you come away with the, with a proper directed uh, conclusion and that's how it's worked it's worked by psychologists and neuroscientists has been for an awful long time even before they had the name neuroscientist back with more after this break I'm back, cutting through the matrix, and uh, I don't know how many people have seen, maybe the folk who've done the Occupy Wall Street uh, demonstrations across uh, the country have, have noticed these these boxes on, like scissors jacks, they go up two stories, and uh, it's a police, they're police boxes, they call them. So tonight I put a link up to one article on that, it's to do with uh, uh, the lower Manhattan, Zakote Park. Uh, and uh, about Officer Guzman, apparently he was one of the guys who was in these metal boxes. But they're quite something. They, they're kind of hydraulic, I guess, at the bottom. And it's like a scissors jacket goes up, and they can, the, the guy inside the box can raise it or lower it. And this thing is just full of equipment. It's got, it's got, I know it's got built-in microphones in all directions. It can scan all cell phone calls in real time as it's all happening. And in fact, they can block them all, too, if they want to and uh, they're listening on all the, all the calls that are going on, and they watch everything through little television sets inside all around the place, and so they can actually get a good view, zoom right into, zoom right into anything or anybody. And it says here, For the initiated Skywatch, it's like one of those mechanical forest walkers from the Star Wars movies, without the lasers or the ability to walk. Imagine a seven-foot-by-six-foot metal box with blacked-out windows on its four sides, bristling with cameras, spotlights, and a small spinning anemometer, which apparently detects wind speed. And it says, spindly hydraulic legs that allow it to sit on the ground or rise up two stories. Inside that climate-controlled cube is a control panel with switches to turn on the lights, a joystick to raise and lower the unit, and various other remote controls that Officer Guzman, this is the guy who was in it apparently, or someone like him can use to direct the camera and watch their feeds on video screens while they are recorded on multiple digital video recorders. So I'll put that one up tonight just to let those who haven't seen it, uh, put it have a look and see what it looks like. It's quite something when you see it for the first time. And uh, they can plonk them in the middle of roads. I've seen them in other places too over the years uh, across the U.S., and it's always spy on everybody around them. So it's just just amazing how free we are as we're in a police state, an obvious police state, isn't it? This article here, too, is to do with this as well, how the war on terror has militarized the police, for those who haven't quite noticed. Because, you see, most folk don't notice. They actually, they actually along with all the movies they watch, they've been programmed and predictive programming to expect to come, along with all of that, and, and actually going through and adapting to the war on terror, as I like to call it, um, the, they, they don't notice that they're in the middle of a police state. They really don't, most folk. So it's how the war on terror has militarized the police, and it says, 
At around 9 a.m. on May the 5th, 2011, officers with the, the Pima County, Arizona Sheriff's Department Special Weapons and Tactics Team surrounded the home of a 26-year-old Jose Garina, a former U.S. Marine and veteran of two tours of duty in Iraq, to serve a search warrant for narcotics. Now, SWAT teams, you know, should they be sent out just to serve a ser- You know darn well that they're assassination teams. I've been watching these things for years. As the officers approached, Grina lay sleeping in his bedroom after working the graveyard shift at a local mine. When his wife Vanessa woke him up screaming, she'd seen a man outside the window pointing a gun at her. Grina grabbed his AR-15 rifle and instructed Vanessa to hide in the closet with her four-year-old son and left the bedroom to investigate. Within moments and without Grina firing a shot or even switching his rifle off of safety, he lay dying, his body riddled with 60 bullets. A subsequent investigation revealed that the initial shot that prompted the SWAT team barrage came from a SWAT team gun, which is pretty, is most common, and not Garina's. Actually, they're itching to kill folk. The way they're trained, they're itching to kill. Garina, reports later, revealed had no criminal record and no narcotics were found at his home. It's one of these, oh, well, you know, it's oops, oops moments that just go and, and come and go. They come and go, these oops moments, and nothing ever happens. Sadly, the Greeners are not alone. In recent years, we've witnessed a proliferation of incidents of excessive military-style force by police. SWAT teams, which often make national headlines due to their sheer brutality, why has it become routine for police departments to deploy black-garbed, body-armored SWAT teams for routine domestic police work? The answer to this question requires a closer examination of post-9-11 U.S. foreign policy and the war on terror. Ever since September 4, 14, 2001, when President Bush declared war on terrorism, there's been a crucial yet often unrecognized shift in United States policy. Before 9-11, law enforcement possessed the primary responsibility for combating terrorism in the U.S. Today, the military is at the tip of the anti-terrorism spear. Uh, this shift appears to be permanent. Uh, as I've said before, you're in a permanent police state now. In 2006, the White House's National Strategy for Combating Terrorism confidently announced that the United States had broken old orthodoxies that once confined uh, our counter-terrorism efforts primarily to the criminal justice domain. In an effort to remedy the relative inadequacy in dealing with terrorism in U.S. soil, police forces throughout the county or the country have purchased military equipment, adopted military training, and sought to inculcate a soldier's mentality amongst their ranks. Actually, it's because they, they recruit a lot of the guys um, uh, from the, the military, that's why. Uh, it says, though the reasons for this increasing militarization of American police forces seems obvious, the dangerous side effects are somewhat less apparent. Undoubtedly, American uh, police departments have substantially increased their use of military-grade equipment and weaponry to perform their counter-terrorism duties, adopting everything from body armor to, in some cases, attack helicopters. The logic behind this is understandable. If superior military-grade equipment helps the police catch more criminals and avert or at least reduce the threat of domestic terror attack, then we ought to deem it an instance of positive sharing of technology, right? Not necessarily. Indeed, experts in the legal community have raised serious concerns that allowing civilian law enforcement to use military technology runs the risk of blurring the distinction between soldiers and peace officers. Actually, you got to understand, too, it's deliberate, too, the whole perception. Everything, again, is perception. And your predictive programming from all the movies you've watched, even long before 9-11, with the, the, the SWAT teams just rampaging through homes and bashing down doors, and killing folk uh, has, has, has normalized it. It's actually normalized it in your mind, so you don't really care as long as they're not busting down your door and killing you. This is especially true in cases where much 
to the chagrin of civil liberty advocates, police departments have employed their newly acquired military weaponry not only to combat terrorism but also for everyday patrolling. Before 9-11, the usual heavy weaponry available to small-town police officers consisted of a standard pump-action shotgun, perhaps a high-powered rifle and possibly a surplus M16, which would usually have been kept in the trunk of the supervising officer's vehicle. Now police officers routinely walk the beat armed with assault rifles and garbed in black full battle uniforms. When one of us, Arthur Ritz-Reiser, returned from active duty in Iraq, he saw a police officer in the Minneapolis airport armed with M4 carbine assault rifle, the very same rifle Arthur carried during his combat tour in Fallujah. The extent of this weapon inflation does not stop with high-powered rifles either. In recent years, police departments, both large and small, have acquired bazookas, machine guns, and even armored vehicles and mini-tanks for use in, in domestic police work. To assist them in deploying this new weaponry, police departments have also sought and received extensive military training and tactical instruction. Originally, one of the largest of America's big city police departments maintained SWAT teams and they were called upon only when no other peaceful option was available and a truly military-level response was necessary. Today, virtually every police force or department in the nation has one or more SWAT teams, the members of whom are often trained by and with U.S. Special Operations Commandos. Furthermore, with the safety of their officers in mind, these departments now habitually deploy their SWAT teams for minor operations, such as serving warrants. In short, special has quietly become routine. The most serious consequence of the rapid militarization of American police forces, however, is a subtle evolution in the mentality of the men in blue from peace officer to soldier. This development is absolutely critical and represents a fundamental change in the nature of law enforcement. The primary mission of a police officer traditionally has been to keep the peace. Uh, Those whom an officer suspects to have committed a crime are treated as just that, suspects. Police officers are expected under the rule of law to protect the civil liberties of all citizens, even the bad guys. For domestic law enforcement, a suspect in custody remains innocent until proven guilty. Moreover, police officers operate amongst a largely a friendly population and have traditionally been trained to solve problems using a complex legal system. The deployment of lethal force is an absolute last resort, well, it used to be. But again, going back to the movies, uh, how many movies have you watched where they just bust down the doors and shoot the bad guys uh, who are criminals, you know? Is that what you do with criminals? You just kill the criminals? That's what the, the, the courts are for, is to deal with the criminals. Soldiers, by contrast, are trained to identify people they can encounter as belonging to one of two groups, the enemy and the non-enemy, and they often reach this decision while surrounded by a population that considers the soldier an occupying force, which, which he generally is. Once this identification is made, a soldier's mission is stark and simple. Kill the enemy, try not to kill the non-enemy. Indeed, the soldier's creed declares, I stand ready to deploy, engage, and destroy the enemies of the United States of America in close combat. This is a far cry from peace officer's creed that expects its adherents to protect and serve. The point here is not to suggest that police officers in the field should not take advantage of every tactic or piece of equipment that makes them safer as they carry out their often challenging and strenuous duties, nor do I mean as to suggest that a police officer once trained in military tactics will now seek to kill civilians. It's far too easy for Monday morning quarterbacks to unfairly second-guess the way police officers perform their jobs, whether out on the streets waging what must be at times, or at least feel like at times, a war. Notwithstanding this concern, however, Americans should remain mindful bringing military stealth training to domestic law enforcement has real consequences 
when police officers are trained like soldiers, armed like soldiers and uh, dressed like soldiers, it's not surprising that they're beginning to act like soldiers. And remember, a soldier's main objective is to kill the enemy. Well, actually, it's ingrained now. It's now the new normal, and it's not going to change, folks. It won't change. It won't change uh, from any administration's uh, quarters, put it that way. It's now a part of the system, not only in America, but elsewhere too. And, uh, but yeah, I've been serving warrants uh, for, for petty things, um, and, uh, and, and very often, the amount of stories where they've gone into the wrong houses or apartments and killed everybody in the place, it's just utterly, incredibly disgusting. And there's more and more happening all the time. And you better believe it, once you see you get a militarized police, it's not just the police that's militarized, you have a militarized mindset in society. And I'll touch on that when I come back from this break. Folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix and talking about the militarization of the police. They're everywhere, even in small towns. They wear combat boots and all the rest of it. And it's just ridiculous. And this is, this is to familiarize the public with the style. And by the way, in Canada, across provinces in Canada, I mentioned before, in a small town where I was, uh, before 9-11 happened, in the late 90s, there was little little pieces in the newspapers and telling the people to expect to see the police in their smart new uniforms. And they actually got guys, almost like models, to walk down the streets in these police outfits and actually look, smile and, and sort of glower at the public. And, and uh, what surprised me is nobody noticed as they're all passing by. These guys wearing black ties, black shirts, black jackets, uh, combat boots with their pants tucked in and all the rest of it. And nobody noticed. It was just most folk take things in through osmosis. That's how they learn. It's almost subconscious, but maybe by repeated exposures to the to seeing something, it's like it's always been like that. They don't notice the changes. It's quite amazing that the experts have been working on every facet of our minds because they know how the general public work. They're absolutely certain on it, and they are. They're certain, and it actually works. But anyway, um, when you militarize uh, the police, you get a militarized mindset amongst the, the general population, uh, and uh, they put up with it too. So it was a war going on, but, but these guys were supposed to be after terrorists, not even drug dealers and so on. So you cannot mix the two together. And, and then again, when they do go in and kill the wrong people at the wrong houses and everything else, and they open fire first as well, you've got an out-of-control system here. And the public are, are militarized, have a militarized mindset with all the movies, yada, yada, yada. Uh, they don't think, we better stop this right now. You gotta stop it right now. And you have to have, and there has to be a big show of these guys being, uh, uh charged and drummed out of the police service. You better, if you want confidence in the general public, that's what you gotta do. But understand, because the public are so far gone, they don't mind. That they won't do a darn thing about it. Oh well, poor schmuck, I guess a casualty of war, you know, collateral damage, you know, that's all it is. And nothing happens. So it's past that point. Personally, that's my point of view. That's my point of view. And 
missing too how they're changing everything. And of course, one of the big, biggest targets of for centuries was the Catholic Church, and many centuries actually, uh, by a, a particular group. But uh, this, this article here is about the changing the Mass again. It says, each Sunday for decades, Roman Catholic priests have offered the blessing, Lord be with you, and each Sunday parishioners would respond, and also with you, until this month. Come November 27th, response will be, and with your spirit. And so begin a small revolution in a tradition-rich faith. At the end of the month, parishes in English-speaking uh, countries will begin to use a new translation of the Roman Missal. That's not missile, it's missile. This is a ritual text of prayers and instructions for celebrating Mass. International committees of specialists worked under a Vatican directive to hew close to the Latin, in other words, keep close to the Latin, sparking often bitter protest by English speakers over phrasing and readability. After years of revisions negotiated by bishops' conferences and the Holy See, dioceses are preparing anxious clergy and parishioners for the rollout, one of the biggest changes in Catholic worship in generations. So it's upsetting a lot of them because they have to go and redo and relearn a lot, a lot of stuff. And so are the public too, I suppose, as they answer back in these, these missiles. Nothing gets to, change, to stay much the same, eh, except the ones that rule us. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's another article too, but carbon tax becomes a reality. Uh, the, the, the Gillard movement uh, in Australia, the first one to, the one that was given the honour by the Council of Foreign Relations and Royal Institute of International Affairs to, to, to kick off the carbon taxes as a country, uh, and it comes straight down to the personal level eventually. This has passed the final hurdle in making the carbon tax a reality with a controversial bill passing through the Senate. The government and Greens used their numbers in the upper house to vote in favour of the Clean Energy Bill 2011. Uh, of course, they'll get their, their backhanders from their, the lobbyists too for doing it because the big boys want it. They're going to make a fortune on it. The government's mechanism to price carbon will begin on July the 1st, 2012 with a $23 per tonne carbon tax on the 500 biggest polluters. That's bull as well, no, because the public eventually pay for everything. The tax will then move towards a market-driven emissions trading scheme, and actually it'll be just like the taxes. The uh, the guys will buy a whole bunch and they'll trade it and make a profit. It's all already have in the European Union. It says the carbon tax aims to cut Australia's emissions by 5% from the year 2000 levels by the year 2020 and bring emissions down 80% by 2050. So I guess you have to really 80% of the population. Before the bill passed, Treasurer Wayne Swan labelled the vote as historic, claiming the reform would be a victory for the optimists. Listen to the terminology. Victory for the optimists and it will be a defeat for the deniers. Is this a Holocaust thing or something? Mr. Swan continued, what's important about today, this is all deliberate, you understand this terminology, is the government has done the, the, the hard yards, putting in place the important long-term reforms which ensure our future prosperity. Actually, they've lost more business than ever before, even when they start talking about it. And anyway, uh, what they did at the end was to open champagne in the House, and all the guys that got lobbied, all these politicians, uh, drank their victory and now they'll go out and get their uh, rewards, you know, the, the, the old-fashioned way from their, their lobbyists. Uh, this is an inter- interesting article about the Atomic Energy Agency. It's, it's such a, a farcical agency today. It's a political agency now, really. It's, it's supposed to be the International Atomic Energy Agency. I'll hear the music coming. I'll go into this accusation when I come back from this break. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back cutting through the matrix and... I'm talking about the International Atomic Energy Agency. So according to the latest news reports, Amano is, a, is actually a, partly Japanese, I think, kind of. It says, Yukiya Amano. It says, according to the latest reports, Amano will also attach a 15-page addendum with a new report detailing documents about certain alleged studies, Kian wrote on Tuesday. And it says, the Daily quoted Iranian diplomats as saying that during his visit to Washington last week, Emmanuel received orders about the necessity of releasing the report at the current juncture, and for this reason he declined to accept requests by Russia, China, some European countries and member states of the non-aligned movement to remain impartial on Iran. In other words, uh, the U.S. has asked him to condemn Iran and fudge the statistics and reports, uh, whereas Russia, China, and other countries uh, were wanting them to go ahead with the current reality of what they really do have on Iran. Experts in Iran and the IEAEI Secretariat believe that the addendum is technically and legally indefensible and will quickly call into question the agency's credibility. It's already been called in its credibility. It's been called in before. Says Kian said that the, the, the IAEA's November 2011 report includes no new documents and all existing ones are those found on the laptop, allegedly spirited out of Iran in 2004. The report will prove that despite his claims, Amano had no new information and released the same old data. This indicates that the, the IAEA is lying about having information showing that Iran had a nuclear, had nuclear weapons programs after 2004. And it says, neither Iran nor the agency have ever seen the original documents. Although Iran and the agency have since 2007 demanded that the original documents be given to an independent team to ascertain their authenticity, the U.S. has repeatedly declined. It's kind of like, well, we've got the real dope on them, no weapons of mass destruction and stuff, but we can't show them to you. These U.S. refusals were so annoying that former the agency's chief, Mohammed El-Baridi, repeatedly accused the Americans of obstructing the agency's safeguards. It appears that the U.S. merely possesses an electronic file, and there's no original file on the alleged studies. In 2007, Iran presented a 117-page assessment to the, the atomic agency in which Tehran proved that the documents on alleged studies were forged. Amano did not mention this in his report. Another important fact is that even if the documents in question are authenticated, the agency or any other source cannot prove they are linked to Iran. In other words, gathering a few documents, doctoring letterheads and forging a few signatures and seals do not prove these documents belong to Iranian governmental institutions. There is also no report or document that proves the use of nuclear material in what the agency calls alleged studies. Therefore, even if hypothetically these documents were authenticated, they could be pertaining to conventional military activities and claiming that these activities were nuclear in nature uh, is completely without grounds. So, in other words, they're, they're setting up Iran for, for the invasion. They have to do it, and we know that too. You, as soon as they put the sanctions on any country, no-fly zones, not the rest of it, you know they're about to bomb it. And uh, we know that Israel wants that too. In fact, it's been in, in there. Just have a scan of the Israeli newspapers and the push for uh, from the top, from the administration, actually, not so much from the people, to get into in, and bomb Iran. So they'd rather have the, the U.S. do it and pay for it all 
and uh, it's quite good to get things for free. But uh, we'll see how it goes. And but anyway, so we're so sick of these weapons of mass destruction, yada 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 yada. And we've watched them bombing all through the, the countries, the same countries that were on the list uh, from George Bush's day when he was a member of, under Rumsfeld with Rumsfeld and uh, Cheney. And there was peril behind the scenes too, Wolfowitz, who set up the new American century with the list on it of all countries they wanted to take out. And then they congratulated um, uh, Obama for carrying on with the same list. So, you know, when you see the same uh, theme going through changes in, in, in government in the U.S., you know you're under tyranny. That's what, uh, that's what uh, Jefferson said. And you are. You're getting run by, um, it's difficult to say a foreign power, technically. But it's, it's a sort of foreign power. And, uh, and they'll use any, any lies to get their agenda through. And that goes with the civilian populations as well, including everybody at home. You understand, even when it comes down to uh, this new system, this uh, austerity that you must go into, uh, that was put out, first of all, by the United Nations, uh, the time of austerity, uh, and, and supported, by the way, by uh, the big international bankers who support all sides, and actually lead all sides, uh, you, you find that austerity also comes into sustainability. Sustainability has two meanings under the United Nations. Partly, it's sustainability of, of resources, but the big meaning, the one that they all admit to on their own sites, if you look deep enough, is sustainability is the redistribution of your wealth to other countries and resources. So uh, taking a big chunks of your paycheck to ensure that people in other countries and poorer countries uh, will get these things uh, at an awfully big discount, all the, all the goodies that you uh, crave in your own countries and in, in, in the post-consumer society. So we're going through a big, big agenda to change the whole world. The new, new world order means it's going to change the world. That means all your, your cultures, traditions, everything that went with it are gradually phased out in the meantime. And they bring in the new, exactly what they're doing with the European Union, trying to get rid of their flags. They've already, they've already put their history down the memory hole, and nothing happened apparently before uh, the, the, the creation of the, the first tentative steps of the, of the European Union. Uh, I guess we're all living in the caves before that. And uh, so all started after World War II, civilization apparently, and that's what the children are now taught. You go back even further, you'll find the same movement with John Dewey and others who came out to make sure that the educational system would do, give out the right kind of brainwashing. You understand uh, to change cultures and to ensure that propaganda will take on a population, uh, you must start and give them a, the basic education. That trains them through a whole bunch of scientific methods to accept rubbish and BS in the future. And so it's essential for propaganda to, to uh, always be preceded by the correct kind of indoctrination or education, as they call it. It's more difficult to, to brainwash through propaganda in a literate society. They know that. This is all in their own books. You know, they're teaching books for how to, how to do it. <laughs> so... As I say, we're, we're really into something else. Now, I mentioned just last night, I just touched on it, but didn't go into the story, was to do with China. Now, China is a model state for us all to follow. It's supposedly still communist, and all the big boys, the big bankers, the internationalists love China because it's still totalitarian uh, in its structure, 
It's, uh, uh, it's, it's like you must apply to the Politburo if you want to get a business off the ground because it's, they'll, they'll have a big cuts in, in what your business is going to be. And they also have their own kind of bank at the government where they can fund it as well. So the bankers are all in it. By the way, the same banking families are really all throughout China. And um, this article here is about what they think of us, you see. This, this country that we've all to become where they run children over in the streets and stuff like that, and it's, it's not no big deal. Uh, like the articles I read a week or two ago. It says, The chairman of China's sovereign wealth fund remains skeptical about supporting a European bailout. It says, As a global financial crisis continues to hit the Eurozone, Nicolas Sarkozy, the French president, and other European leaders have been banking on China to step in and wave its magic wand. But is China prepared to bail out Europe? It's so comical, isn't it, really? Because, you see, we created China with our tax money. Not because we were asked to. In fact, most of us didn't even know what was happening. It was done through the World Trade Organization. This umbrella group joined together with a special unit, the WTO, uh, of a star chamber of judges who decided that they're going to put all your money out to China and bring them up to a first world status under the Royal Institute of International Affairs uh, agenda. That's what they're doing. Same with Brazil and other countries, India now too. And then they also uh, said that the taxpayers in America, Canada and elsewhere will fund all businesses to move out of your country and will pay them for 10 years or more, 15 years uh, to set up in China and will pay them any losses they incur or claim they've incurred up until that time. Not bad, eh? That's your own politicians did that, folks, because they don't serve you. They belong to special societies. So here's China now, the, the big manufacturer for the planet, as it was designed to be, and uh, this is what they think of you. This is Al Jazeera's Timur Nabil, or Nabili, talks to Jin Lokan, uh, the supervising chairman of China Investment Corporation, China's sovereign wealth fund, to find out whether China is willing to invest more money in Europe, in particular the European Financial Stability Fund, which European leaders now want to beef up for future bailouts. See, we've got to be interdependent, meaning we all sink if one goes down. This is part of the con of all this EU crisis stuff that's going on right now. Jin, who served as China's Deputy Minister of Finance and, and Vice President of the Asian Development Bank, uh, that's part of the UN too, or, or the World Bank, manages $400 billion worth of the nation's money through the Sovereign Wealth Fund. He says that unless Europe changes its labor laws, they want to change and knock down the labor laws, by the way, and adjust its welfare system, that means literally uh, eradicate it to be like China. He does not consider it to be a profitable investment. He says, if you look at the troubles which happened in European countries, this is purely because of the accumulated troubles of the worn-out welfare society. This is a socialist talking, supposedly. Real socialism is very much different from what you think at the bottom. He says, I think the labor laws are outdated. The labor laws induce sloth, if somebody's lazy in the West, indolence to to their employers uh, rather than hardworking. The incentive system is totally out of whack. Why should it, for instance, within the Eurozone, some members, people have to work to 65 years or even longer, whereas in some other countries they're happily retiring at 55, languishing on the beach. He says, this is unfair. The welfare system is good for any society to reduce the gap to help those who happen to have disadvantages to enjoy good life. But a welfare society should not induce people not to work hard. So that's China, who will shortly be dictating to you, uh, that's telling you what they think of you. And remember, too, under ongoing negotiations, they've already passed some laws uh, to let them into your countries across the world, 
This is the part of the free trade deal put out based in London, the Royal of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations America. Uh, they hammered out the free flow of labor and goods into your country and they can bring in their own labor and pay them at their own wages. But they also want, they also want to pay you uh, uh, at the wages you get paid as if you were a, a little uh, hardworking character in China. Don't forget that. And this is all done from the boys in London. Amazing, eh? Who've been running this whole show and agenda for well over a hundred years. Now, the U.S. glossed over cancer concerns associated with airport X-ray scanners. That's from Scientific American. Says experts say the dose from the back scatter is negligible when compared with naturally occurring background radiation, but a linear model shows even such trivial amounts increase the number of cancer cases. It says it's on September 23rd, 1998, a panel of radiation safety experts gathered at Hilton Hotel in Maryland to evaluate a new device that could detect hidden weapons and contraband. The machine known as the Secure 1000 beam x-rays at people to see underneath their clothing. One after another, the experts convened by the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration raised questions about the machine because it violated long-standing principle in radiation safety. And the principle is that humans should not be exposed to x-rays unless there is a medical benefit. So they've broken that law. Like every other law they're breaking. So I think this is really a slippery slope, says Jill Lepotti, who was the director of the New Jersey's Radiation Protection Program. The device was already deployed in prisons. What was next? She and others asked. Courthouses, schools, airports. I am concerned with expanding this type of product for the traveling public. This is another panelist, Stanley Savick, the vice president of for safety at a large electronics company. I think this would, this would take this, this thing to an early, take it to an entirely different level of public health risk. The machine's inventor, Stephen W. Smith, assured the panelists that it was highly unlikely that the device would see widespread use in the near future. At that time, only 20 machines were in operation in the entire country. The police said, I think you're not going to see these in the next five years as lower security facilities, particularly power plants, embassies, courthouses, airports, and governments, Smith said. I'd be extremely surprised in the next five to ten years if Secure 1000 is sold to any of these. Today, the United States has begun marching millions of airline passengers through the X-ray body scanners, parting ways with countries in Europe and elsewhere uh, that have concluded that such widespread use of even low-level radiation poses an unacceptable health risk. The government is rolling out the X-ray scanners despite having a safer alternative that the Transport Security, Transportation Security Administration says is also highly effective. A pro-publica PBS NewsHour investigation of how this decision was made shows that in post-9-11 America, security issues can trump even long-established medical conventions. The final call to deploy the extra machines was made not by the FDA, which, reg- which regulates drugs and medical devices, but the, by the TSA, an agency whose prime mission is to prevent terrorist attacks. So once again, this whole terrorism thing uh, allows them to break all uh, rules. This is research suggests that anywhere from 6 to 100 U.S. airline passengers each year could get cancer from the machine. Still, the TSA has repeatedly defined the scanners as safe, glossing over the accepted scientific view that even low doses of ionizing radiation, the kind beamed directly at the body by the X-ray scanners, increase the risk of cancer. Even though it's a very small risk when you expose that number of people, there's a potential for some of them to get cancer, says Kathleen Kaufman the former radiation management director in Los Angeles County, who brought the prison x-rays to the FDA panel's attention. It's interesting that Israel is a company that churns out a lot of these, uh, and they won't use them in Israel. They say they're no use anyway, apart from the cancer. They're no use. 
you know. And it doesn't matter. And then the guy who was, was a security guy at the top of the U.S. was a guy uh, at the time, I think it was, was at Tormridge. And then the guy who took over from him, and they were the guys who started it up. And, and when they left government, it started it up and, and pushed them like salesmen in the U.S. But anyway, and, uh, and tonight I'll try and find that Article 2 uh, it was put out to the, to the this year to the employees of the, the TSA because it actually says in it that they've had such a, 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 a massive increase in cancer with employees around these radiation scanners that, that they're, they're, they're complaining and, and want more safety regulations brought in, etc., etc. So you can know what's happening to the general population. It doesn't matter about you, your collateral damage again. <laughs> Plus it brings down the population. And it'll also help to sterilize you, which is part of the... So a whole bunch of agendas can be worked out in one go here, eh? Not too bad. These guys aren't stupid, are they? And we've watched this farce in Europe as the... Uh, the whole farce, it really is a farce. It's one big, long play, isn't it? Where they say, oh, we'll keep trying to plug this hole in Greece. We don't know where the money goes, we won't, or we won't tell you where it goes, or where it's already gone. And trillions have been tossed at it from every country until they're all broke. And supposedly you all have to get broke together and go down together before one can be allowed to go down. Or just right off the debt, you know. So there's no trick dirty enough to get this through, this big central bank with the IMF in charge of it all through, which is, was on the cards, quickly talked about it in the 1960s. He, did, he was a historian for the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Council of Foreign Relations. They're fulfilling every part of their agenda that he talked about. It says the EU summit seals one trillion euro deal. One trillion after Merkel in Germany warns of possible war in Europe if they don't get it through. Nothing's low enough for them, eh? Just after, uh, hours after Germany issued a chilling warning that war could again engulf Europe, EU leaders made a desperate one trillion bid to save the euro. They're scraping the barrel here to try to convince the public uh, who are already terrified they're all going to collapse. Uh, that this, this, they'll have to go along with it to be saved. So the central bank, which they hate, is going to save them now. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks. I'm back. Cutting through the matrix, and just to finish off, talking about China, the most—it's got the most favoured nations trading status to the United States and elsewhere by the United Nations and the CFR and the Royal Institute of International Affairs, who set the whole free trade deals up, and they planned that over 100 years ago. Anyway, the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee said its researchers had uncovered 1,800 cases in which the Pentagon had been sold electronics that may be counterfeit. It's from China. Should tell that to that guy that said they should do away with all the workers' rights across the West. Eh? And total, the committee said it found more than a million fake parts had made their way into warplanes such as a Boeing C-17 transport jet and the Lockheed Martin C-130J Super Hercules. Also found fake components in the Boeing CH-46C night helicopter and the theater high-altitude air defense THAAD missile defense system. A million parts is um, surely a large number, but I want to repeat this. We've only looked at a portion of the defense supply chain, so those 1,800 cases are just the tip of the iceberg, said Senator Carl Levin. Around 7 in 10 cases 
the fake, fake parts originated in China, while investigators traced another 20% of cases to the United Kingdom and Canada, known resale points for Chinese counterfeits. So they should arrest Britain and, and Canada then, shouldn't they, for selling counterfeit parts on behalf of the Chinese? In the southern Chinese province of Guangdong, counterfeit microchips are often smuggled out of factories or burned off old computer circuit boards before having their identifying marks sanded off and repainted as new. It's true they've got, they've got hordes of children sitting painting these things uh, around the garbage dumps. In Chinese bazaars, military, so-called military-grade microchips are openly advertised, although these chips are often commercial chips that have been modified and relabeled. Multigrade chips are designed to withstand far greater extremes of temperature and humidity, and there are fears that these fake Chinese parts could suddenly fail. We cannot tolerate the risk of a ballistic missile interceptor failing to hit its target, a helicopter pilot said, uh, unable to fire its missiles, or any other mission failure because of counterfeit parts, says John McCain. I guess you see Lockheed Martin, these guys, the big war industry boys, are wanting to get another, start making them back home or somewhere else. Uh, probably again from China, they'll have a better watch over that they're made properly. They probably want a contract for themselves. Experts said the problems are not new and have dated from the decision in the 1990s by the Clinton administration to cut costs by asking the Pentagon to buy off-the-shelf electronics rather than designing its own systems. As the electronics manufacturing migrated to China, it was given to China, by the way, the U.S. had been less and less able to control the quality of its military hardware. Some of the fake chips are bought by the Pentagon on the open market in order to maintain its fleet of older vehicles, which have outdated circuitry. These chips are often salvaged by the Chinese scrap merchants from the dumps of electronic waste that have accumulated in the south of the country. In 2008, an investigation by the U.S. Commerce Department found nearly 7,400 incidents of fake electronics and military hardware. And actually, there's, there's, there's just way more than that in civilian stuff. You, you don't dare buy a wall socket to put in for your mains for your electricity in a, in a room. I had one here, and I had all the, the, the stamps on it, commercially approved, and the whole thing. And, and, and the darn thing blew the main fuses as soon as I plugged anything into it because it had literally no insulation between any of the contacts whatsoever. So anyway, well, in 2005, internal Pentagon documents suggested that there had been equipment malfunctions because of fake parts. The Senate committee said China should act promptly and clamp down on its flourishing electronics black market. And yada yada, and yada yada yada, etc. It goes on and goes on and on. I'll put all these links up now at cuttingthroughthematrix.com in about an hour's time, and you can uh, have a look at them for yourselves, maybe save them for posterity. Uh, where you talk to children who wouldn't have a clue that things were any different than the totalitarian system they'll live under them. From Hamish myself from Chair Canada, it's good night. May your God or your gods go with you. Remember, help me out too, and you can donate or buy the books, etc. See you tomorrow. <laughs>